But go ahead and turn to Micah chapter 7. So you notice we sang uh, those songs about our sins being gone, specifically our sins being in the depths of the sea. And I wanted to sing those because as Independent Fundamental Baptists, we sing a lot of songs about our sins being gone about our sins being in the depths of the sea. One of my favorite songs is called In the Depths of the Sea, about our sins being there. And let me just say, it is 100% appropriate for us to sing those songs. It's, it's 100% appropriate for us to claim that for ourselves. But at the same time, too, um, a lot of the people who sing these songs, who make that claim about how our sins have been removed from us and cast in the depths of the sea, these people also are ones who will go to the Old... Whenever we claim things from the Bible, from the Old Testament, say, well, that's for Israel, that's not for you. Well, understand that the sins being cast in the depths of the sea, that was a promise to Israel. And we're going to see that, and it is okay for us to claim that. And I'm going to show you as we go through this chapter too, that pretty much all Israel-supporting IFB, they turn into Calvinists whenever they start talking about Israel and their salvation. And as much as they hate Calvinists, they all interpret the Bible like a Calvinist when it comes to that one subject, which is pretty goofy. But before we start going through this chapter, just a little review, we're in the final chapter of Micah. And to kind of summarize the book uh, as a whole before we get to this chapter without going through the previous six chapters, it's important to just kind of be reminded of what is going on. And also, it's important that we take into consideration what ended up happening to help us understand this chapter. So first off, the prophet Micah, he's doing prophecies against Israel and Judah, two different kingdoms. He warns them of coming destruction from the Assyrians. And he also prophesied about the destruction of Mount Zion. That was something that was going to come or the temple where the temple is. And so while God was going to bring major judgment on these two kingdoms, God is not done with them. Okay? If you lived in Micah's day and you were talking about the prophecies coming on Israel, it would be a very appropriate for you to say, God's not done with Israel. Because God was not done with Israel. You know why? The Messiah hadn't come yet. The Messiah had not come yet. Sin had not been removed yet. All those things had not taken place yet. So of course God was not done with Israel. Now, for me to go to Micah the book of Micah today, and then read some prophetic stuff about the Messiah and say, see, God's not doing this. Like, wait a minute, the Messiah came. So, uh, obviously, some things have changed since then. But these entire prophecies, they're not all about the Messiah, but they are thrown in there. There are Messianic prophecies thrown in there to help them understand that while they were going to go through some very hard times for their sins, God was not done with them. God's wanting Israel and Judah to know... I'm going to punish you, but I am also going to restore you. I'm not done with you. I am going to keep the promises that I made to your fathers. So don't think when you're hearing about all this destruction that it's over for Israel. It's not over for Israel. So what ended up happening, Judah, we know they ended up repenting during Hezekiah's reign, but Israel or the northern kingdom did not. And because of this, God spared Judah from the Assyrians but they still had to pay later and they paid later with the Babylonians. And so after the end of the Babylonian captivity, God showed Daniel through the writings of Jeremiah that they were about to be restored. Okay, God was going to restore Israel to the land, but there were still 
490 years of desolations that Judah was going to have to suffer because of their sins. So God's letting Daniel know. And Daniel didn't really like this, but it was what God had determined. That, okay, you guys are about to go back in your land, but don't get too excited. You got 490 years of desolations. You have 483 years before the Messiah comes. And then he's going to come and he is going to confirm a covenant with many for one week. And in the midst of that week, he's going to, he's going to cause a sacrifice and ablation to cease. Uh, you know, the Messiah is going to be cut off. He's going to make an end of sins. We all are familiar with Daniel 9 and all those things. But, you know, that would kind of stink as a prophecy. While there's hope in that prophecy, it's 490 years later, you know, but that's what it was and that's what happened. And so included in that prophecy from Daniel, though, was the messianic prophecy about Jesus coming, confirming his covenant and Israel. And, and he explained how he's going to confirm that covenant with the people of Israel, how he was going to finish the transgression. He was going to make an end of sins. He was going to make reconciliation for iniquity. He was going to bring in everlasting righteousness. And Jesus did all of that mission accomplished, fulfilled. It is finished. Jesus did all of that on the cross. He finished all of those things. But sadly, you know, the Jews, like many dispensationalists, they didn't like how God fulfilled his promise. This was not what they were expecting. It was not what they wanted. And they ended up rejecting Jesus as the Messiah, even though that was the Messiah coming to save Israel and to turn away ungodliness from them. And he did save those who believed on him. He did turn ungodliness from those who believed on him. But because they didn't like how it worked, they rejected the Messiah and they have been looking for another king. They have been looking for another Messiah, a different Messiah, another Christ or an Antichrist is what they've been looking for. And one of these days, there will be a man who will come along uh, that will uh, be destroyed by Jesus at his second coming when he comes with all his saints. And I hate that I have to say this, but Jesus already came and took away the sins of Israel. He already did that. The deliverer already came and he turned ungodliness away from Jacob. Acts 3.24 says, Yea, and all the prophets from Samuel and those that follow after, as many as have spoken, have likewise foretold of these days, ye are the children of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with our fathers, saying unto Abraham, And in thy seed shall all the kindreds of the earth be blessed. Unto you first, God having raised up his son Jesus, sent him to bless you, in turning away every one of you from his iniquities. Peter spoke like it had already happened. Where the dispensationalists are, pre are still pre preaching like it's something that's going to happen. And it's like, no, Jesus already did that. But Israel had to accept him as the Messiah. And the ones who did, all those promises they received. But for some reason, a lot of Baptists turn into Calvinists when it comes to Israel's salvation. Nope, they're going to get it whether they want it or not. No, that's not how that works. That is not how that works. And so, I hate that I have to say all these things, but uh, this is where theology has gone in America today, thanks to Zionism, Jewish propaganda, all that kind of stuff. But having said all this, let's go through this chapter and see what we can learn from it. So notice what it says in verse 1. Woe is me, for I am as when they have gathered the summer fruits. As the grape gleanings of the vintage, there is no cluster to eat. My soul desired the first ripe fruit. And while I don't fully understand this reference, I think it's just a very poetic way of talking about how hard or how heavy their heart is 
because of what's going to come on them. It was really bad. This was a, just a poetic way of saying, I don't like what I'm hearing. I don't like the thought of what's coming. A lot of bad was coming for Israel. It says, The good man is perished out of the earth, and there is none upright among men. They all lie in wait for blood. They hunt every man, his brother, with a net, that they may do evil with both hands earnestly. The prince asketh, and the judge asketh for a reward. And the great man, he uttereth his mischievous desire, so they wrap it up. The best of them is as a briar. The most upright is sharper than a thorn hedge. The day of thy watchman and thy visitation cometh. Now shall be their perplexity. And he's basically, he's just accurately describing the spiritual condition of Israel. Because notice the word visitation that he used. And we don't often use that word visitation the way the Bible does. For example, a lot of churches, they'll have visitation. Well, if, if, if we as a church, if I as a pastor went on visitation, like Jesus went on visitation, that would not be a pleasant experience for anyone. Because visitation is like a reckoning. It would be like, if I, you know, so the truth is, if I did visitation, you know, like the Bible uses that word, I'd be coming to your house and I'd be like letting you have it for everything you've done wrong. <laughs> that's, that's what visitation is. Okay, what visitation is, that's uh, uh, what can be similar to that is dads, when you come home and, you know, after your wife has told you about all the terrible things the kids did that day, you know, and she's pronounced all, she's prophesied to the kids all kinds of judgment that's going to come when daddy gets home. And then when daddy gets home, what happens? You have a visitation. We have a reckoning. And it's usually not a pleasant experience. Sometimes it's a good experience. The other day I got home and uh, this week and Hannah was all excited to see me because she was expecting a visitation because she got rid of her passy. And I told her if she did good that first night in bed, I was going to take her for candy the next day. And she did great. She slept through the night. She just handled everything so good. And I kind of forgot about it. But I got home. She was like at the door greeting me with a big smile on her face. She was ready for my coming you know, because she had done good. And then it's like, oh, yeah. And so I went and I, I took her for her reward. And uh, we, we settled up for the good. But it's, that's not always the case. Sometimes when I come home, you know, they're, they're kind of in the other room, you know, real quiet, hoping... Uh, I'll forget about what's coming. And so, uh, that's what that word visitation means. Uh, and we've talked about that before. Um, but lost my spot there. So, yeah, so he, he's describing their condition. He mentions visitation. And again, he's using that because a visitation is about to happen in Israel. They have been sinning against God. And while obviously God himself wasn't about to show up at that time, God was showing up in the form of judgment through the Assyrians. And this was going to be a reckoning for Israel. They were going to pay for all their sins. And so this visitation was not something that they were looking forward to. So he says in verse 5, Trust ye not in a friend. Put ye not confidence in a guide. Keep the doors of thy mouth from her that lieth in thy bosom. For the son dishonoreth the father... The daughter riseth up against her mother. The daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own house. Now, they, things were so bad, they weren't even safe around family. And you know, it's really bad when your own family's working against you. You know, that's not a good sign. But, here's the other thing that's interesting about this passage. 
So this is the state of Israel during that time. But that phrase right there is also prophetic. He's also making a prophetic statement right there. In Matthew chapter 10 and verse 34, Jesus is speaking. And understand, Jesus' first coming was also a visitation. He had a visit. We talked about that a while back. He had a visitation on Palm Sunday. And it didn't go well for Israel. And, and here's the thing too. We don't, I don't have time to go deep into this and say a whole lot about it. But let me just tell you something, all right? When Jesus showed up on Palm Sunday, if he, when he came at his visitation, if he would have given Israel what they deserved, you know what would have happened? He'd have wiped them out. But you know what he did instead? He suffered himself. He died on the cross. He took their judgment. He took their payment. He died for Israel and died for the sins of the whole world. And so, thankfully, at Jesus' visitation on Palm Sunday, He didn't give Israel what they deserved. He didn't give the world what it deserved. But He did give Himself what we all deserved. And what a uh, wonderful thing that is. And so, in Matthew 10, 34... He said, think not I am come to send peace on earth. I came not to send peace, but a sword. For I am come to set a man at variance against his father and a daughter against her mother and the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's foes shall be they of his own household. He that loveth father and mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he that loveth son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he that taketh not his cross and followeth after me is not worthy of me. And he that findeth his life shall lose it. And he that loseth his life for my sake shall find it. And so right there, that statement that Jesus made where man's foes should be those of his own household, he was referring back to Micah. So that was kind of a prophetic thing there showing too what was coming for Israel because while deliverance was going to be coming for Israel, why a Messiah was going to be coming for Israel, understand that those who accepted Jesus as the Messiah, it meant them being put out of Israel. It meant them being put out of the congregation. And this is something that is very difficult for most of us to wrap our minds around because most of us in here, we grew up in America. We grew up in a Christian-ish culture. And, uh, and so the truth is, you know, most of us, we've not had to suffer the loss of everything as a result of us following Christ. Back then in Israel, you, were, you would be put out of the temple. You would be put out of the synagogues. You would be physically persecuted sometimes. You would be shunned by your family many times. I mean, you, you could lose jobs. You would lose business. In America today, you know, we, you might suffer some persecution from family. Some of that definitely goes on, for sure. But to the level that it did back then, it's not likely. You, you know, most of us haven't received physical persecution, and especially from family. Can, I mean, can you imagine... You know, being physically persecuted, that would be bad enough. But imagine if it was your family, you know, that they were so zealous of their traditions and the law that they were physically turning on you too. That'd be tough to see and tough to deal with. But that's the kind of thing that they dealt with. And so I think it's, it's hard for us as American Christians to fully understand this statement. But a lot of parts of the world, it is still like this today. And even someplace in this country... What do you think would have happened to some of the people we talked to last week when we were in Little Palestine if those people would have gotten saved? If all of a sudden 
their neighbors would have seen them, seen us talking to them for a long time. And then the next day, they don't show up. Well, they don't go to mosque on Sunday. They go to mosque on Friday. But then, you know, and their, their car gets spotted at one of the local churches. What do you think would happen to those people? So they live in America. They probably wouldn't get killed. But at the same time, too, you know, they'd probably magically lose their job that they had with their Muslim employer. You know, they would probably all of a sudden be real unpopular in the neighborhood. Uh, we, we have no idea what it would be like. But that's how, what, that's how it was for Jews, especially back in Israel during that time. So verse 7 says, Therefore, I will look unto the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. And Israel needed to learn not to look to their land that there was judgment against, not their buildings, which there was judgment against, and their armies, but they needed to learn to look to the Lord. They needed to learn to you know, look on Him whom they were pierced. That's what they needed to do. And so, let's look at this chapter now, though with the mindset of a sinner who has looked to God for salvation from their sin. Because again, there's a message in here for us. There's a message in here that we can claim. While this was a prophecy about a physical nation during a specific time in history that is come and gone over 2,000, 20, like 2,700 years ago, understand there is a spiritual application that we can make for ourselves in here. There, are, there is a prophetic application here about something that God would not just do for Israel, but God would do for us too. It's important that we get this. So verse 8 says, Rejoice not against me, O mine enemy, when I fall. I shall arise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord shall be a light unto me. And the truth is, we are bad. The wages of sin is death. But you know what? We will arise. We will rise one of these days. There's something called a resurrection. One of these days, if the Lord tarries is coming, there will be a funeral for all of us. We will be put in the ground. You know why we will die? We will die because our flesh is sinful. We will die because we have all sinned. But because, but the thing is, you know what? Satan can't really rejoice against it. Because one, our soul is going to be in heaven. But two, we are going to rise one of these days. There is a resurrection coming. We're all familiar with the resurrection. It says in verse 9, I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against Him until he plead my cause and execute judgment for me, he will bring me forth to the light and I shall behold his righteousness. So Mike is saying he will take the indignation the Lord is bringing on Israel at that time because he knew God wasn't done with them and he would plead for them in the end. So again, while judgment was coming on Israel, understand God wasn't done with them. They were going to arise again as a people. Judgment is coming on all of us as sinners. Okay? And even if you're saved, okay, because we're God's people, even though we're going to physically die one of these days, we are going to rise. We are going to behold His righteousness. And why, why do we know that? You know why? Because Jesus took our indignation for our sin and He pleads our cause. Notice the verse says, until He plead my cause. Okay, now, how is, how is God, or how is the Messiah going to be able to plead Israel's cause? He's able to do that because He paid for their sins. 
Now, don't tell me that's only for Israel. We can't claim that. I mean, the Bible is very clear that Jesus Christ is in heaven making intercession for the saints. And that's scripture for the New Testament church right there. We can, without a doubt, claim the same thing. Verse 10, then she that is mine enemy shall see it and shame shall cover her, which said unto me, where is the Lord thy God? Mine eyes shall behold her. Now shall she be trodden down as the mire of the streets. And so just like Israel made a comeback, we will make a comeback one day and our accuser, the devil, will be ashamed. One of these days, the Bible says, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O grave, where is thy victory? O death, where is thy sting? There will be a day when death will be ashamed. When he loses every one of those saints to the resurrection at the return of Jesus Christ. When he calls us up. We know that's going to happen. And so, um, again, while uh, there's no doubt this is dealing with something very specific during that time, the application for us is there. I mean, it's, it's crystal clear. So, verse 11, because this next part we're going to see, this is more specifically about the land, and this was already fulfilled after the Babylonian captivity. Notice what it says in verse 11. In the day that thy walls are to be built... In that day shall the decree be far removed. In that day also he shall come to thee from Assyria and from the fortified cities and from the fortress even to the river and from sea to sea and from mountain to mountain. Notwithstanding, the land shall be desolate because of them that dwell therein for the fruit of their doings. So remember, he's prophesying a comeback for Israel that's going to take place but they still are going to have 490 years of desolations. It's still going to be a long road ahead of them. And the Bible does not give us a whole lot. We don't know a whole lot about that time. We've got Ezra and Nehemiah. You know, we've got Malachi, you know, Haggai and Zechariah. It's, it's, it's in there in that time period too. But most of that they call the 400 silent years between the book of Malachi and Matthew. And if you, if you look at history, you know, those were terrible years for Israel. They were in their land. Uh, you know, they, they had their temple again. But there was a period of time where the temple got desecrated. They weren't able to use it because the Greeks. And then later they ended up getting the temple back and had to cleanse it. And uh, a lot of crazy stuff happened during that time. It was not a good time. It, things were really bad for Israel up until the Messiah came. But then they rejected the Messiah and then the worst time they ever had came in 70 A.D. And guess what? They still haven't come back. Okay? And uh, don't get me going on 1948 and how fake all that is. But Israel, never, they've never made a comeback. And they're not going to. Okay? And, and you say, well, no, the Bible prophesies the comeback. Listen, they will arise. That was specifically talking about them being returned to their land, which happened after the Babylonian captivity. I believe it was prophetic too, though, because of the fact Jesus was smitten for Israel. He died and he rose again. The fulfillment was with Jesus Christ. And so again, we have to stop looking for some new fulfillment some with Israel, especially when they have rejected Christ. All those things have already taken place, have already been fulfilled. So verse 14 says, Feed thy people with thy rod, the flock of thine heritage, which dwell solitary in the wood, in the midst of Carmel, 
Let them feed in Bashan and Gilead as in the days of old. According to the days of thy coming out of the land of Egypt, will I show unto him marvelous things. The nations shall see and be confounded at all their might. They shall lay their hand upon their mouth. Their ears shall be deaf. They shall lick the dust like a serpent. They shall move out of their holes like worms of the earth. And shall, they shall be afraid of the Lord our God and shall fear because of thee. And so God would preserve His people. And one day, I do believe we're going to see a fulfillment of this at the return of Christ. Because notice what He's saying too about how the nations are going to be confounded. How it's talking about uh, they're going to lick up the dust like a serpent. They're going to be afraid of the Lord. Now, here's the thing about this. I can't think of any time in history, and I don't think anybody claims there's been any time in history where anything like this has taken place, where the people of earth were fearing the sight of God because judgment was come upon them. And I believe in Revelation 6.15 is where we can see the fulfillment of this. And, of course, we do not believe Revelation 6 uh, has taken place yet. But notice it says, because I believe this, this passage right here is directly connected to these last verses of Micah chapter 7. It says, and the kings of the earth and the great men and the rich men and the chief captains and the mighty men and every bondman and every freeman hid themselves in the dens and in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him that sitteth on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb for the great day of his wrath is come and who shall be able to stand? So right there, one of these days, the earth is going to fear at the sight of the coming of Christ because they realize judgment's coming upon them. And you say, well, if all these other things happened back then, why wasn't there a fulfillment of this during that time? And that, the answer to that is very simple. Because in spite of all that Jesus did, in spite of all the preaching of the apostles, everything they did throughout the book of Acts to try to get Israel saved, in spite of the apostle Paul, leaving the ministry he was doing to go back to Jerusalem to try to get Israel saved, to try to get Israel to repent. They never repented as a people. They never did what they were supposed to do. And so someday, this, uh, this is going to be fulfilled. You know, when God is done, you could say, with the world. And we believe that... Uh, I personally believe that that seven-year Jewish-Roman war, that that was technically... God always knew how it was going to play out, but technically that was supposed to be the tribulation and God was supposed to deliver them as a people during that time. But Israel never repented. So they never got deliverance. And so one day, we as God's people, as a, as a spiritual people, not as a physical people, but one of these days, I do believe there will be a massive persecution, a time of great tribulation that's going to come on God's people. But this time we will be delivered. You know why? Because we have been cleansed through the blood of Christ. We have accepted Jesus Christ as the Messiah. We have believed on Him. And I do, I do believe all saved people will reject the Antichrist when He comes. I don't believe we'll take the mark of the beast. I don't believe God will let any of His children do that. And then we will see this physical fulfillment take place. So verse 18 says, Who is a God like unto thee that pardoneth iniquity? And passeth by the transgression of the remnant of his heritage. He retaineth not his anger forever, because he delighteth in mercy. He will turn again. He will have compassion upon us. He will subdue our iniquities. 
and thou wilt cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. Thou wilt perform the truth to Jacob and the mercy to Abraham, which thou hast sworn unto our fathers from the days of old. Now, folks, again, we are right to sing songs about our sins being cast into the depths of the sea. But notice that promise was to Jacob. So I'm going to do that to Jacob. This is a prophecy for Israel. For sure, this is a prophecy to Israel. And you say, well, then I guess we can't sing those songs. Well, I would say that were the case if this is about something God is going to do in the future to Israel. Because it's saying here, he's going to cast them into their sins in the depths of the sea. He's going to remove those transgressions from them. So why are we singing about it like it's already passed? We're singing about it like it's already passed because it has passed. And you say, how does this apply to us? It applies to us because Jesus did this for Israel at the cross. He did it for Israel at the cross. And all those who will believe on him are included in that. Okay, We are included in that. We are included with all the promises to Israel they do apply to us because we are of faith. We are the true Israel. So without a doubt, these things apply to us. And so the sins have been cast up sea. We're always going to sing those songs past tense. And I wish we could at least get the IFB who act like this is something that's in the future to admit they shouldn't be singing those songs about their sins being gone and cast in the depths of the sea. That was for Israel. You're saying we're not Israel. That was for Jacob. You're saying we're not Jacob. And you know what? They're not going to quit singing those songs and they shouldn't sing those songs. But you know what? They're going to keep confusing people if people actually go study the passages that those uh, songs have taken, that they, or they study the scriptures that inspired those songs. But they are right in doing that. These things happen at the cross. We already read Acts 3. We see in Psalms 103, verse 11, it says, For as the heaven is high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward them that fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. Like as a father pitieth his children, so the Lord pitieth them that fear him. And that's what all the songs say. Removed as far as the east is from west. Okay? That was a promise to Israel. But for sure, we can claim that. And you say, how did he do that? He did it at the cross. It's not something that is still to come. It's something that has already come. Hebrews 8.10. I don't have time to... I'm not going to go into a deep dive in this, but I do want to read this because this right here is the passage that the hardcore dispensationalists, the hyper-dispensationalists use to prove there is another covenant coming. Your saved dispensationalists, I never hear them use this to teach the new covenant hasn't come yet. They just kind of ignore it and don't know what to do with it. But let me explain what we do with this passage because it's really not that complicated. But uh, again, it's, it's complicated if we forget the fact that we are a continuation of the church in the wilderness. That we are Israel reformed. If we forget that, this passage might, what might confuse some people. But Hebrews 8, 10 says, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days. Now, by, this is quoting Old Testament. This is referring back to Jeremiah says, saith the Lord, I will put my laws into their mind and write them in their hearts and I will be to them a God and they shall be to me a people. This is not talking future during that time. 
is quoting Jeremiah. That's why it's talking in future tense. He's showing where the scripture came from. Now watch this. And they shall not teach every man his neighbor and every man his brother saying, know the Lord for all shall know me from the least to the greatest. So, oh, look at that right there. There's, you know, during the millennium, we're not even going to be allowed to go soul winning. You know, that's what uh, I've heard him say. They teach their you know, soul winning will be illegal, you know, punishable by death. And I, I, I don't have time to go into other scripture they use to prove that in the millennium. And it's just like, that's just so dumb. Not everybody in the millennium is going to be saved. And so we're just going to let the unsaved people stay unsaved. That, that's so dumb. But that, that, this is one of the verses they'll use. It says, For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness, and their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. In that he saith, A new covenant he hath made the first old. Now that which decayeth and waxeth old is ready to vanish away. So here's what he's talking about here. So first off, there, he'll be merciful to their unrighteousness, sins and iniquities will remember no more. Remember the context. They have been explaining in the previous, or he's been explaining in this passage, he's going to explain in greater detail in chapter 9 how the sacrifice for sins that Jesus made was a one-time sacrifice. It wasn't like the sacrifices that they would do every year where those sins were brought into remembrance again. He is explaining in great detail how the sacrifice of Christ replaced all of those things. In fact, it was the fulfillment of all those sacrifices and we don't do those things anymore. One sacrifice was sufficient. That's what he's mainly talking about right here when he's saying he's not going to remember him anymore. And then he talks about the new covenant, that which decayeth and waxeth old. Those old ways, the daily sacrifices, the annual sacrifices, that's growing old, that's vanishing away. God's done with that. That's what he's saying right there. So when he's saying you should not teach every man his neighbor and every man his brother, because understand, under the old covenant, did you know you could be a part of Israel and not be saved? You could be a part of Israel and not know the Lord? So, you, and how did you enter into that covenant? You entered into that covenant when you were circumcised on the eighth day. Well, an eight-year-old boy, he can't make that decision. So the thing is, they were supposed to continue to teach their children the ways of the Lord. And if they didn't do it, it didn't matter if they were circumcised or not. They weren't going to follow the Lord. And Israel never did. But understand, under the new covenant... If you're in the new covenant, guess what? That means you believed. If you've entered into the if you've entered the new covenant, that means you got saved. If you've if you entered into the new covenant, the blood of Christ has cleansed you from your sins. It's a one-time thing. So any whenever we are around a people who are in the new covenant, we don't have to teach them know the Lord. We don't have to get resaved. We don't have to teach people how to do that kind of thing anymore. There's no remembrance of those things anymore. It's all done. It's a one-time thing. And I wish I had more time to go deeper and prove this. That's just a dumb interpretation they're making. Because, again, in Hebrews, it's quoting a dark passage from the Old Testament. And they're just ignoring all the things revealed in the New Testament acting like this is still to come. Hebrews 10.16 says, This is the covenant I will make with them after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts and in their minds. I will write them. And their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. What's he doing there? He is explaining how he can forget sins with one sacrifice. That's what he's explaining. One sacrifice. And that's where sins go away. And folks, the only way for God to forget sins is through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. That already happened. So, here, here's the thing. 
when it comes to, you know, whether or not we're going to go to heaven, hell, obviously we're all, you know, people who go to hell, they're going to hell because they're sinful. But at the end of the day, there's really only one thing God's looking at. It's not the specific sins. It's did you believe on Christ or not? And those who believed on Christ, our sins are forgotten. Our sins are cleansed. They're under the blood. It's already done. It's finished. It's over. Those who have not accepted Jesus as the Messiah, they have no claim to that. And let me tell you something. When Jesus Christ returns, Israel, if they have not gotten in on the new covenant, if they have not believed on Christ, they're done. End of story. There's not another sacrifice coming. There's not a wait. Now is the day of salvation. And so, uh, Micah 7, that's where this whole concept of our sins being cast in the depths of the sea comes from. It comes from Micah 7 in a prophecy to Israel. And we are consistent in our songs and in our theology where a lot of churches today are not. And I think we need, they need to get these things straight. So, with that, let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you so much for casting our sins in the depths of the sea. We're thankful that uh, they will not be brought up again or visited again. And that we're thankful for the blood of Christ uh, that did that, that was that sacrifice once and for all. Help us to continue spreading that good news about that sacrifice, the only thing that will pay for sins. In your name we pray. Amen.